the history, and that does take up probably a, a large part of the time, but also learning from uh, church history as we see principles exemplified, lessons learned, uh, things to imitate, things not to imitate. Uh, but today I want to begin with Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went through all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is something that uh, Jesus exhorted his disciples to do in his day. It's been uh, something for the church in every age. Uh, we could apply it, obviously, today to pray that God would raise up those to, to preach the gospel, uh, to gather the scattered sheep, uh, to, to organize churches for uh, the assembling and, and edifying of the saints. Uh, but this was a challenge in early America as well both praying for the raising up of preachers and then also for the gospel, that it would take effect. Uh, Today I want to look at, just after the American Revolution, the last decade or so of the 1700s, the first decade or so of the 1800s, around that turn of the century, and uh, the the revivals and and, uh, missions among some of the native tribes and the challenges that they faced. And indeed, it was a time in which there were many people who were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, But fortunately, the Lord did raise up those to preach the gospel and to uh, harvest the harvest. So first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, missions. Uh, Usually when we think of foreign missions, we think of going overseas and um, pretty quickly, that movement would take off in the United States. But even in the 1700s, even in the 1600s, there were, we might call them foreign missions, uh, within the colonies uh, to the native tribes of those lands, uh, to the Indians. And uh, that began among the Puritans in New England and um, uh, throughout the colonies eventually, And uh, the Presbyterians would take up that task as well. I think I previously mentioned David Brainerd as one such missionary who was a a Presbyterian minister, Newside minister, who preached to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey. He became well-known and, in fact, inspirational for later missions movements uh, because of uh, his journal that was edited and published by Jonathan Edwards. But lesser known is his brother, John. Uh, David, you know, was, was working for a couple years, maybe three or four years, something like that, and, and died. His brother, John, picked up the mission and went on for 20 or 30 years, uh, carrying on the mission among the uh, Delaware Indians in New Jersey. Um, the War for Independence interrupted that work. He actually then served as a chaplain and then died near the end of that war. But for decades, he was doing that missionary work. Another uh, Presbyterian missionary was, him fa- was himself a member of the Mohegan tribe near New London, Connecticut, and his name was Samuel Ockham. Uh, he was converted during the Great Awakening, and then after his studies, he became a Presbyterian minister. He began his work among the Indians on Long Island, 
and then among the Iroquois in New York, then back near his home in Connecticut. Uh, he opposed the sale of tribal lands, but eventually many of the Indians in Connecticut and the Mohican Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, um, where Jonathan Edwards had worked as a missionary, a lot of them eventually moved to western New York. And so he worked with them there until his death in 1792. And that's actually a pretty incredible story because you have this fruit of earlier missions work. They continue to move west, but missionaries and other preachers continue to follow them. And eventually they moved to Wisconsin, and uh, the mission work among them joined the OPC at its founding in the 1900s. And the OPC has three churches on or next to the Menominee, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, reservation, reservation there in northern Wisconsin. Uh, and so that's been uh, a work for a long time. There had also been an attempt at a mission among the Cherokee in the south in the 1750s during the Great Awakening through Samuel Davies and others, but war interrupted that effort. Later in 1803 to 1810, a man named Gideon Blackburn established two missions among the Cherokee. Uh, Last time I talked about Samuel Doak, who had preached to the troops right before the Battle of King's Mountain. Samuel Doak trained Gideon Blackburn. Later, Gideon Blackburn trained one of the founding Presbyterian ministers out here in Missouri. Um, After Blackburn moved on, the Congregationalist ministers helped resume the Presbyterian mission among the Cherokee in 1818, and they named it the Brainerd Mission, after David Brainerd. Uh, it continued to inspire these later generations of missionaries uh, within North America. And so that work was, was ongoing throughout the 17, 1800s. Uh, but among the, the colonists now having their independence, uh, the uh, Americans, they had very uh, variety of challenges in the 1780s and 90s. Uh, there was the destruction and disorder of war, which had uprooted people, had uh, disrupted life and that steady life of going to worship and discipleship and those sorts of things. Uh, there was the rising influence of French infidelity. Uh, Thomas Paine, for example, went to France and became even more radical there, and uh, you had a rise of deism and, and rationalism from France uh, that was influential in some parts of America. The French Revolution awakened many American leaders to the danger of irreligion and deism in the decades after the American Revolu- Revolution, especially with the French Revolution beginning in 1789. Um, and so Founding fathers like Elias Boudinot and Patrick Henry uh, became more urgent that, oh, we need to make sure we reinforce the Christian nature of, of our country and, and uh, hand out books that are uh, meeting these challenges. Uh, George Washington's remarks on the necessity of religion in his farewell address should be read in that background, uh, that, that being a challenge of that day. In New England, Unitarianism became more visible and institutional, uh, especially in Boston. And with the war over, many people moved west. Uh, The frontier was open. They moved west and again start to scatter to the four winds and uh, arrive in places without churches, without preachers. Um, And that forms a challenge for the church, lest they lose their discipline and their regular ministry. Likewise, the fall of the Anglican Church really left a vacuum in certain areas like Virginia. The Anglican Church had been the established church. Every, pretty much every member of Virginia had been a member of the parish as well. 
but uh, both because they became a little unpopular because some Anglican leaders had supported the British, uh, but also because they were just even connected with the British by being the Church of England, whether fairly or unfairly. Um, and they had to reorganize. They were disestablished. And they became the Protestant Episcopal Church, but part of them split off into the Methodist Episcopal Church uh, at the same time. That's when the Methodists really began as its own movement. Now, disestablishment was good for the Presbyterians. It allowed them guaranteed religious liberty, but also left a lot of people without much of an established ministry, left a vacuum. And there was a lot of work ahead of all the other denominations to pick up the slack. But even during this discouraging time, there were exceptions. In 1787 to 1789, there was a revival in Virginia and North Carolina among the Presbyterians. It started at Hampton Sydney College. Uh, a few of the students had begun meeting for singing and prayer, and a lot of the other students, who were not very religious at all, um, took offense and started calling them Methodists. That was their way to you know, uh, accuse them. You're acting like a bunch of Methodists, and told them to stop. Uh, but when the president found out, uh, president of the university, John Blair Smith, he encouraged them and said, in fact, I'll lead your meetings, and started to talk to the students, and that began a revival there. Uh, which drew attention from others, sent other people out. Uh, William Graham, one of uh, John Blair Smith's co uh, colleagues in, when they were in college, uh, he came over from Lexington, Virginia, and he was greatly encouraged, took the flame back home to western Virginia. With him, he took a young man named Archibald Alexander, uh, who we'll come across later on. But in this way, that revival at Hampton, Sydney spread in the Presbyterian Church in the South, which was really good because it also raised up future leaders for the church uh, for the Second Great Awakening that would begin later. Now, I mentioned people were moving out west. Out west at this point meant Kentucky and Tennessee, places where Daniel Boone had been during the American Revolution. Now people swarmed into that land and established themselves. In 1785, there were 12 Presbyterian churches in Kentucky, but was also still a bit of the Wild West. But widespread revival began in 1800. And to give you a sense of what this looked like or felt like, let me read from one Presbyterian minister, James McGrady. Um, he says, or said, The year 1800 exceeds all that our eyes ever beheld on earth. All the blessed displays of almighty power and grace, all the sweet gales of the divine spirit, and soul-reviving showers of the blessings of heaven which we enjoyed before, and which we considered wonderful beyond conception, were but alike a few scattering drops before a mighty rain, when compared with the overflowing floods of salvation, which the eternal, gracious Jehovah has poured out like a mighty river upon this our guilty, unworthy country." The Lord has indeed showed himself a prayer-hearing God. He has given his people a praying spirit and a lively faith, and then he has answered their prayers far beyond their highest expectations. Uh, he mentions their prayer preceding the revival. Uh, in the 1790s, there had been many calls for prayer to redress the, the you know, increase in, in skepticism uh, that was throughout the, the new states. And the Lord heard those prayers, and uh, people began to respond to the preaching and, and draw others to the preaching of the gospel. And one occasion that fostered this revival was 
was the camp meeting. A camp meeting began with Presbyterian communion services. Uh, there had been a long tradition among Presbyterians to have communion less frequently um, for various reasons that we could get into at another time. But that had been the tradition in Scotland. It actually kind of be, almost became like we would think of as like a, uh, a conference where you meet for several days and hear different sermons leading up to it and afterwards. Um, but in Kentucky, there weren't enough homes to house all the people who would be drawn by it. And so they started bringing their tents and started camping. And um, in 1800, this began to be something that would draw many people, even not church members, uh, people who weren't actually there to take the Lord's Supper, but for all the preaching that would go on. And so one of these, probably the largest, is the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky. In 1801, there were 18 Presbyterian ministers preaching there, all right, 18 Presbyterian ministers, plus some Baptist and Methodist preachers too, and about 15,000 people in attendance. Uh, they had to set out the tents with streets. Uh, it was like a city all of a sudden. And this is back when the population of Kentucky was not all that large. The largest city in Kentucky was about 2,000 people. All right, so then 15,000 people arrive here for preaching. They have preaching going on in different places throughout the camp at the same time. And uh, only 750 were church members who received the tokens to take the Lord's Supper. If you were a church member, you could get a, a certain token that you would then give at the Lord's Supper to show that, that you had been admitted to the table. A lot of these were, were not church members, but were hearing the gospel and responding then um, to the gospel. And, and many hundreds were, uh, were then added uh, to the church. Let me read you another quote describing this revival. And that's from this book, Revival and Revivalism, uh, which I first got at the Men's Advance uh, when I was 15. And it was one of the books to help persuade me to become a pastor. Uh, it was nice to return to it for, for this study. Uh, but this is a letter that uh, George Baxter wrote to Archibald Alexander in 1802 and describing the impact of the revival. Did it, did it change things? You know, once the event was over, what happened next? Well, he says, The power with which this revival is spread and its influence in moralizing the people are difficult for you to conceive of and more difficult for me to describe. On my way to Kentucky, I was told by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed, and that they were now as distinguished for sobriety as they had formerly been for dissoluteness. And indeed, I found Kentucky the most moral place I had ever been in. A profane expression was hardly heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country, and some deatistical characters had confessed that from whatever cause the revival might originate, it certainly made people better. Upon the whole, sir, I think the revival in Kentucky among the most extraordinary that have ever visited the Church of Christ, and all things considered, peculiarly adapted to the circumstances of that country. Infidelity was triumphant, and religion on the point of expiring. Something of an extraordinary nature seemed necessary to arrest the attention of a giddy people who were ready to conclude that Christianity was a fable and the future a dream. And so this uh, spread not only at Camp Ridge, but other meetings and churches. Uh, people added to the Presbyterian Church and the Baptists and the Methodists. But it wasn't without controversy. Uh, as we saw with the Great Awakening. 
what were they to make of the emotional outbursts and the disorderly behavior that accompanied some of these camp meetings? Especially with so many people, it's hard to to uh, keep an eye on, on everything, and some people would start to get uh, would start to fall, fall unconscious or fall unable to get up for an hour, just overwhelmed. Uh, some people started to have the jerks, is what they called them, where they would start to twitch uncontrollably. What what were these? Were these necessarily the work of God, miraculous, something to be promoted, a sign of God's work, uh, or was this a natural outlet of emotional excitement? potentially caused by religious affection, but to be kept within limits and not relied upon. Um, The latter view would be taken by David Rice, an experienced minister, uh, Father Rice as they called him, Uh, but other ministers got carried away and even called Rice anti-revival for simply taking this more moderate position. Some of the most enthusiastic or carried away ministers eventually left the Presbyterians. Uh, One became a Quaker. Uh, Three became shakers and abandoned marriage and and, uh, really went off the deep end. Um, And others joined two spin-off movements that began in Kentucky, which you'll still come across today. Uh, Well, at least you'll come across one of them, the Restorationist Churches, and the one you might not see as much today is the Cumberland Presbyterians. Um, The Restorationist Movement was committed to being mere Christians, to be above all the denominations and creeds and confessions and dogma uh, with radical autonomy and freedom. One of their early slogans, which ironically is kind of like a creed, was, we have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the divine. That was their slogan. You'll still come across that, that attitude today, even in churches that are not part of the Restorationist movement. Very American. Um, in one sense. Uh, two restorationist groups were founded by two Presbyterian ministers, uh, Thomas Campbell and Barton Stone. And these merged in 1832 to become the Christian Church, or sometimes known as the Disciples of Christ. Later, a group split off from them to be known as the Churches of Christ, or Church of Christ. Uh, they gave up infant baptism. They gave up Calvinism. Uh, sometimes they gave up more. Since there wasn't any creed, you know, there were a lot of variety. Two, Barton Stone denied the doctrine of substitutionary atonement of Christ and tinkered with the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the guardrails are off, and, and everything's back up for, for grabs. Uh, the Cumberland Presbyterians were a more moderate group. They retained a Presbyterian system of government. They had a modified version of the Westminster Confession, uh, but they did not require ministers to be educated, or at least as as much as uh, Presbyterians had formerly required. And they also allowed ministers to be Arminian. They didn't require you to be Calvinist or Arminian. That's why they modified the Confession of Faith rather substantially uh, in those areas. And uh, it began when the Cumberland Presbytery in Kentucky began ordaining men who did not meet the educational requirements of the Senate and, re- did not, and only required them to commit to the Confession of Faith, listen carefully, so far as they seemed as it seemed agreeable to the word of God. They subscribe. I was like, I agree with the confession of faith as far as it agrees with the word of God. Well, how far do you think that is? It's, who knows? <laughs> I could say that I subscribe to the Quran as far as it agrees with the word of God, right? You could pick any document and say that, and it might be nothing. It might be a little bit. It might be a few phrases here and there. It might be most of it. Uh, it's a very ambiguous statement. Rather, the normal way of stating it would be that you 
agree that it is the teaching found in the Word of God. And so they, this presbytery deemed it necessary to meet the needs of evangelism on the frontier. Uh, but, and they went back and forth with their synod. The synod moved to dissolve the presbytery, and the presbytery reorganized on its own in 1810. Now, while the revivals began among Presbyterians, the Baptists and Methodists did not have the same reservations about the revival or standards for ministers or Arminianism, especially the Methodists. They were Arminian. And so they tended to grow faster than the Presbyterians uh, in the wake of these revivals. Any questions on uh, what we've talked about so far? So there's, there's things happening, starting to break out, not only though out west. Uh, that would be particularly dramatic, what was happening in Kentucky and Tennessee, and especially uh, helped re-church uh, the, the people who had settled there. But it really was breaking out everywhere. Uh, and one thing that took place at the same time, 1801, was a plan between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists to meet the need for more ministers and to meet the need for uh, forming churches out west where there weren't a lot of people. They figured they were close enough. They both would profess to hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. They held to the, much of the same doctrine except for church government. It was the only place that they formally officially differed. And out west, you might have a town where you have, you know, four Presbyterians and seven Congregationalists, and neither one would be big enough on their own to establish a church, but maybe if they all got together, they would. So in 1801, they formed the Plan of Union between the General Association of Connecticut and the General Assembly of the United uh, Presbyterian Church. Uh, especially because a lot of Congregationalists and Presbyterians were settling, overlapping in western New York, or in New York, and in uh, the Northwest Territory, like Ohio and Indiana. It wasn't a union of the denominations, but a plan for working out West. It set up guidelines for Congregationalist churches calling Presbyterian ministers, Presbyterian churches calling Congregationalist ministers, and then mixed congregations of both Congregationalists and Presbyterians. In mixed churches, they would be governed by a standing committee of communicant members from which appeal could be made by the Presbyterians to the Presbytery and by the Congregationalists to the male communicant members of the congregation. Uh, these committees could also send one of their members to sit and act in Presbytery like a ruling elder. Initially, it seemed like a great idea. Uh, there was advantages. It helped with planning churches out west. A local history could exemplify this here in Missouri. Uh, for the most part in Missouri, uh, Congregationalist ministers and members joined Presbyterians, mostly from the South, to form Presbyterian churches. They ended up mostly being Presbyterian churches here because the New Englanders were in the minority, but often they were quite influential and helpful. Um, for example, Reverend Salmon Giddings was a Congregationalist minister from Connecticut one of the four founding members of the Missouri Presbytery in 1817, and he organized eight churches in Illinois and seven churches in Missouri. Um, the Sibleys, George and Mary Sibley, that founded Lindenwood uh, College in St. Charles were New Englanders who became Presbyterian here in Missouri and uh, became old school 
uh, very committed Presbyterians. Uh, Samuel Hempstead was from Connecticut, was a first ruling elder in Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, and arranged for more ministers to be sent out here, including uh, Timothy Flint, one of the early biographers of Daniel Boone, was a Congregationalist minister working among Presbyterian churches in Missouri. But over time, the damage this plan did to the Presbyterian system of government became evident, especially because after 1801, more heterodoxy, heirs, arose in New England theology. Uh, this tension led to the old school, new school division, which we'll talk about later. You see, the Associated Churches of New England didn't have the same mechanisms for really enforcing the Westminster Confession, even if that was their platform. Um, They didn't have the same uh, ability to require it, or they didn't have the same tradition of requiring it to the same extent as Presbyterians. And, you know those delegates from church committees of mixed churches that might be sent to sit in the Presbytery? Uh, Those were not ruling elders. They were acting like ruling elders, but they had not subscribed to the Westminster Standards as ruling elders. So you had this weakening of the guardrails of the system that would later um, prove unfortunate. But like I said, not only were revivals happening in Kentucky, they were happening in New York, they were happening in, uh, across the, the eastern states. This was the beginning of the Second Great Awakening, which lasted into the 1830s. It really did hold back that wave of French infidelity, for the most part, from overwhelming the United States. You know, Jefferson, or Thomas Jefferson thought that Unitarianism would become the pervasive religion of America. It, it did not. <laughs> it, it did become influential in certain quarters, but, um, but that movement was held off uh, by this Great Awakening. Baptists and Methodists quickly became some of the largest denominations in America, uh, but Presbyterians participated as well and grew by the thousands. This also led to greater fervor for missions, the founding of several organizations like the American Board for Foreign Missions, the American Bible Society, and the American Tract Society, all in the 1810s and 20s. I'll give one more example before concluding here. A very different revival in some ways than out in Kentucky. In Kentucky, they were frontiersmen. Things could get a little wild, uh, a lot of emotion. Uh, and a different revival came to Yale College, similar in some ways. There were still religious affections and, and conversion. But it was Yale College in Connecticut in 1802 under President Timothy Dwight. In the 1790s, the student body had become known for skepticism, rowdiness, unbelief. Timothy Dwight was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, and he became president of the college in 1795. Uh, He would also become head of the Federalist Party in Connecticut and the moderator of the General Association of Connecticut, so a very important figure. But he sought to change this uh, environment. He challenged the students after a few years Uh, After a few years, he challenged them to come up with the best critique of the truth of Scripture they could come up with. Uh, He challenged them to come up with the best defense of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire and Thomas Paine and and others. And then he interacted with it in a sermon series uh, as he defended the truth of Scripture and preached the gospel. And at the end, at the baccalaureate address, he urged his students to embrace Christ. And many of them did. A third of the student body made a profession of faith in 1802. 
Now, Dwight was a Congregationalist, but note the timing. Around the same time as the plan of union. That would be important because a lot of uh, some Yale students were going to become Presbyterian ministers uh, and would help uh, supply some of the ranks, men like Lyman Beecher and Asahel Nettleton, uh, which might, we might talk about later. And so revival came upon the, the states. Uh, it was a work, revival is a work of God. It's his blessing of his means. It was preaching that had been preached throughout the 1780s and 90s that also then in later years was particularly blessed as people were revived by it, drawn to it, drew others to it. Uh, but God poured out his spirit to make it effectual. Uh, there, there was some um, spurious affections on the, the fringes as well, but at the core of it was, was God's work in answering the prayers of his people and converting the lost. And it's something that we still benefit from today, uh, from this work of God, and something we can also pray for uh, in, in our own time, that God would bless the preaching of the word and make it effectual to convict and convince sinners and bring them to salvation and build us up in holiness and comfort uh, in the truth of God's word. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for your grace. We pray that you would indeed raise up uh, preachers to preach your gospel in clarity and truth, and that you would defend your cause, that you would arise and, and draw this people to you, that you would revive your church, that we might uh, be stirred up to love for you uh, and for a lively faith uh, and for the door for the gospel to those who are skeptical, to those who are in unbelief, uh, to those who uh, walk in darkness. We pray that you would also gather in those who have scattered, who do not go to worship and attend a church, that you would uh, organize your people uh, even as you have intended and taught us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.